Well, good morning, everyone. You realize, don't you, that cold is a state of mind? Now, it's actually not, but I'm just trying to make you feel better, help you get through um, the next two months. As you have just seen, we are in this series we've entitled Unstoppable. It's a 10-week series on this fascinating New Testament book of Acts. And today, we come to one of the most famous events in the entire book of Acts, and that is Pentecost. What is Pentecost? Well, it's this supernatural, universal, unmerited outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. Just an incredible, incredible story, and today we're going to look at it. So grab your Bibles, grab a Bible in front of you, turn on your Bibles, and let's go to Acts chapter 2. It's page 1091 in the Bibles in front of you. And as you're turning, let me just say what separates Christianity from all other religions is that we believe God is a triune God. That is, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct, but one God. I want you to see how one theologian expresses the Trinity. Look at these words. Scripture testifies from beginning to end that God is one. But it also presents three persons who are God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There is no legitimate argument over the deity of these three persons in the Bible. Their deity pervades Scripture and assures us that our salvation is from beginning to end a divine salvation, the work of God himself. Nor can it be debated whether the biblical God is one. So God is one, but somehow also three. This fact is difficult to understand, slight understatement, but it is quite unavoidable in Scripture, and it's central to the gospel. Central to the gospel. Now, generally speaking, and again, generally, the Bible teaches us the Father is the supreme authority, the Son is the executive power, and the Spirit is the divine presence. But the Bible also teaches that all three persons of the Godhead are active in every act of God. But there does seem to be a division of labor, say, for example, in redemption. So what is redemption? Well, the Father sends the Son to redeem us. The Son accomplishes redemption on the cross. Then the Spirit applies the benefits of the atonement to all who believe. Now, why do I mention this? Well, two reasons. Number one, it's this certainty about the triune God, the existence of a triune God that is so central to the early church that they were willing to die for it, and many did. But this belief is never something they would have gotten to on their own. It's not something they would have made up. A second reason for mentioning this. Here in our passage, as we come to Acts chapter 2, we are introduced to the incredible role of the Holy Spirit in the church. 
Uh, but to appreciate, to appreciate the Holy Spirit, we can't look at the Holy Spirit in isolation. We need to understand that when the Spirit acts, God acts. And the work of the Holy Spirit is so comprehensive in the life of the church that it is not overstatement to say that Christians are fundamentally spirit people. You know Jesus Christ? You're a spirit person. The church of Jesus Christ is a spirit church. You see, what you believe about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is hands down the most important thing about you. And the depth of that belief, the, the functional reality of that belief in your heart determines as you go through life whether you will be fulfilled or unfulfilled, happy or unhappy, joyful or angry in the different situations, trials, difficulties you face. So let's start reading in verse 1 of chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost, now Pentecost is a Greek word, it means 50th. So the Jewish feast of Pentecost, described in the Old Testament, this one-day feast, was 50 days after Passover. Now it gets a, a little complicated, but basically what this means is Christ was uh, crucified, or Pentecost has now taken place about 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now let's continue reading. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. We're not sure exactly where that place was. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now we know they were in Jerusalem, we just don't know the house. They saw what appeared to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. I'll come back to this. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Now we have a list of these languages, 15 or 16, depending on how you count them. And I want you to skip down to the end of verse 11. Note this statement. We hear them in these different languages declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, well, they've just had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the Old Testament prophet Joel. In the last days. Now, what in the world are the last days? 
Well, the last days are the biblical descriptor of what begins with this first coming of Jesus Christ and this period of time that continues all the way to the second coming of Christ. And as we'll see, sometimes it refers to one end of that spectrum or, or the other. We see this in this prophecy. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Incredible section here of God's word. But what I want to do is focus on the front end. And actually what I want to do is look at the first couple of verses in these three supernatural phenomenon the sound the fire and the tongues now how does the holy spirit make the church unstoppable that's the title of our series well the answer here is wind fire and tongues a uh, 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 sound sight and speech pointing to the power of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and the universal perspective or program of the Holy Spirit. Let's start with power. Look at verse 2, right on the front end of this passage. We are told that on Pentecost, something really strange happened. It, it, it was like a tornado. The sound was like a, a hurricane. Luke calls it a violent wind. And the wind here is a symbol of the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we can say this because if you go back in the Old Testament, to the Old Testament uh, prophecy of Ezekiel say, we have this incredible prophecy in uh, Ezekiel that's uh, just so very interesting. It's this vision and it takes place in a valley full of dry bones. In other words, full of human skeletons. And in this prophecy, there is a connection made uh, between the wind and the activity of God, the, the spirit activity of God. Look at Ezekiel 37. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Uh, now what's the wind here? Well, the wind is a symbol, it's, it's a metaphor, if you will, for the miraculous life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. Interestingly, when we come to the New Testament, Jesus makes the same connection between the wind and the Spirit. Look at John chapter 3. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound. You cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, look around. Notice the wind. 
The way the wind works is a picture of the activity of the Spirit. So wind here in Acts chapter 2 points to the outpouring of this power of the Holy Spirit. It's a power that comes from outside these believers. It didn't come from inside. It came from heaven. It was external to them. Now this is key. And I stumbled across this. Others have pointed this out. And it's been really interesting for me to think about. I want you to see this. Because what is key is what is going on here puts us on, as Christians, a collision course with the world. This is a major collision with the world. Uh, With our culture. Because what does our culture tell us? about problems and solutions well our our culture tells us that our, our our problems your problems are outside you you know it's the people it's the situation it's the tragedies and the solution to your problems is to dig deep inside you but christianity says no your main problems come from inside you and you don't have the power to become the person you want to be, so you must look outside you to God. So there's this contrast between Christianity and our culture, the uh, the world, on problem and solutions. Two very different uh, uh, approaches. One is the problems are outside us, the solutions are inside us. The other is no, uh, our, our problems are inside us in our heart. And we, we must look outside us for solutions. So in the one we blame, the other we confess. And by the way, this is why the world, this is why our culture isn't working morally, spiritually. I mean, think about where we are today. Uh, all the pain, all the misery, all the, the brokenness, uh, all the addiction. Where's that coming from? It's coming from the selfishness, the anger, the hate, the pride inside us. And it's why we're so miserable. The problem, solution, approach of our culture isn't working. Furthermore, it's producing a hopelessness. What do I mean by that? Well, if your problems are due to things going on outside you, other people, situations, ultimately, if you think it through, you can't control them. And that produces a hopelessness. And not to mention the fact that you can't dig deep enough to overcome it. But Christianity comes along and Christianity says, no, 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 no. There is hope. In contrast to despair and hopelessness, there is hope because God sent his Holy Spirit to apply the work of Jesus Christ with a hurricane-like power that changes everything inside us. I mean, think about it. If the power of the Holy Spirit changed these fumbling, fearless fishermen, 
or fearful fishermen into to, to fearless men of, of faith. The Holy Spirit can change any of us. Any of us. This is exactly what Jesus said, as I pointed out last week in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus is predicting the coming of the Spirit here in Acts chapter 2. And Jesus says, what about the Spirit? He says, you will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. So what I want you to understand is one of the ways you can tell as a follower of Jesus Christ that you are being filled with the Spirit is when you stop blaming others. And you own your own inadequacy or your fear or your anxiety or your anger. You own your bankruptcy. And instead of relying on yourself, instead of digging deeper, you look outside you to the spirit of the living God who now has come inside you. Now, you're not perfect, but you're honest. And when you're wrong, you confess it, you admit it. When you, when you stumble and you fall, you own it. So you're not perfect, but you're changing and that's the, the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the ways you can tell you're being filled by the Spirit. Because you're honest. And you're looking outside yourself. And so when uh, some of these things come along that we're having here in the church, like the winter blowout or the, the, the parenting conference or Alpha that, that's starting or all the different men's and women's events, you're not just thinking, man, I, I'd like to see some of my buddies, some of the people that don't know Christ uh, come to this. You're bringing them. And that's not you. It's the power of the Holy Spirit in you, filling you. You see, Holy Spirit power here is hurricane power times millions. And it's what makes the church of Jesus Christ unstoppable if we recover it. If we seek it. Now let me go on. So the first phenomenon is the wind. The second is the fire here. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us, man, this is just crazy, that tongues of fire descended on all the believers present. I, I think there were 120 of them present because that's what Acts 1.15 seems to suggest. Now, we've got to ask the question, why fire? What's going on here? What's the deal with fire? Well, fire is a, a symbol of the, the, the presence of God, actually reinforced here by the, the fire descending and then separating and coming on each believer individually, uh, symbolizing that the Spirit of God now indwells each and every one of us who believe in Christ. Now, we can suggest this, uh, because of some of the things we see, for example, in the Old Testament. Uh, so when Moses approaches the bush that was burning, the burning bush, what is going on there? Why is the bush on fire? Well, the bush is on fire to symbolize the presence of God. God has shown up. Mount Sinai, 
the giving of the Ten Commandments. We are told that God descends in smoke and fire. What's that all about? It symbolizes the presence of God among the people of Israel. We come to the New Testament and the, John the Baptist prophesies relative to Jesus that, hey, Jesus is going to baptize with the Spirit and fire. Fire. Uh, suggesting both the presence of God and the judgment of God. One for the believer, the other for the unbeliever. So the point I want you to understand here relative to the fire in Acts chapter 2, the point the author is making is that on Pentecost, each and every believer becomes a burning bush for the glory of God. You know Jesus Christ, you're a burning bush for the glory of God. Man, embrace that, enjoy that. That is incredible. And this fire, which will be fatal for unbelievers, fell on Jesus on the cross. So that all of us who believe now, 2,000 years later, experience not the fire of judgment, but the fire of the presence of the living God, the presence of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the New Testament is very clear. Uh, that to know Jesus Christ is to possess the Spirit. The moment you come to Christ, the Spirit indwells you. Look at how Paul expresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given one Spirit to drink. The moment you come to Christ, you have the Spirit inside you. You are a Spirit person. We are Spirit people if we know Jesus. But I want, I, I, I want to go deeper. I, I, I want you to see something here relative to one of the, uh, the many wonderful ways uh, uh, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit changes us. I want you to see one of the things it means. So let's look at a different passage. Let's go to the book of Romans in Romans chapter 8. Paul is writing and he says, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. We have a lot of fear in our lives. But you instead received the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs of, of Christ. Now, I, I've read this passage hundreds of times over the years. And this week, when I was rereading it, uh, there, there was a point where I, I, I read this, and I, man, I just got all choked up. Just these verses, all choked up. Because what Paul is telling us is, yes, God has given you the Spirit to empower you for ministry to enable us to do things we wouldn't do on our own. But at a deeper level, what Romans 8 is teaching is that God has given us his spirit to confirm in our hearts that we are loved. That we are God's children. That we are precious sons and daughters to the living God. 
What Paul is saying in Romans chapter 8 is that the Spirit makes God's love, God's compassion, God's forgiveness, God's righteousness real in our hearts. Telling us that God is present. Telling us that God accepts us. So we will have a, a, a sense of adequacy, a sense of significance, a sense of confidence and assurance that we can't get on our own. It's the Spirit in us. It's the Spirit filling us. Now this is Romans 8. This is why Paul says it's not a spirit of slavery or bondage. You have all that in the world, all the performance stuff. It's a spirit of sonship. So we know at the core of our beings, because we believe in Jesus Christ, that we are completely accepted. We, we are uh, totally treasured. Just as good parents treasure and accept their children. Now, think about this as it relates to your frustration my frustration with unanswered prayer. I've got a couple uh, situations going on in my life right now I've been praying about for years. Um, and recently I realized I was getting kind of frustrated because God hasn't answered yet. And then I heard this and it really helped me. The Old Testament city of Dothan. Two incredible uh, uh, things take place. One is the Old Testament prophet Elisha goes to Dothan, surrounded by an enemy army, and his servant begins to freak out. He has a panic attack. And so the prophet Elijah, sensing the fear of his servant, prays that God would open his servant's eyes so that his servant would see the surrounding armies of heaven. And the prophet prays, and God does that. God opens the eyes of the servant. The servant sees the chariots, uh, the horses, the angels, the living army of the living God, invisible to us. Man, I want a prayer life like that. Oh, God opened this person's eyes. Zap, they're open. Yet centuries earlier, Dothan is the very same place where Joseph, is betrayed by his brothers and thrown into a cistern, into a pit. And he prays. You better believe he prays. And he prays. But God doesn't answer. And worse, he's sold into slavery. Becomes a slave. Now, do you see the point? Sometimes you pray and God appears wonderfully present. Sometimes, though, you pray and God appears horribly absent. Nowhere. <laughs> but the reality is God is always present. God is never absent. God is always working. How do we know that? Because the Spirit confirms we're His children. And that He loves us. 
and that he has given us his spirit, uh, uh, tongues of fire to prove it, to show us that he is always working, as I said last week, all things together for good, just as he ultimately did with Joseph. Now, how does this relate to the filling of the Spirit? Well, one of the ways you can know, you as a man, you as a woman, you, you, you students, whether you're married or single, uh, whether you're, you're 85 or, or, or 15, it, it doesn't matter. One of the ways you can know you're making progress in the kingdom, you're being filled with the Spirit, is when you come to these dark patches where you feel like Joseph, you've been thrown into a pit and God isn't answering. And you can say to yourself, you know, I'm going to be okay. Because I know God loves me like he loves a son and a daughter. Because of all that he has done for me in Jesus Christ. And I know God is present with me even though it feels like he is absent because the Holy Spirit indwells me. Uh, so I'm not going to act out. I'm not going to lash out. I'm not going to pout. I'm not going to doubt. Now when you hear yourself uh, talking like that, thinking like that, it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. You may be alone, but you're not lonely. The Spirit is present in you. The Spirit is whispering, God loves you. That's an incredible, incredible experience in life. Now let me go on. One last phenomenon here, and that is the speaking in tongues. Begins in verse 4, goes through verse 11. What is tongues here? Well, tongues is a supernatural ability to speak in a known language that you don't know without Rosetta Stone. Man, it just happens. <laughs> and the tongues here symbolizes, the, the, and, and I'll have to unpack this for you, the universal uh, perspective or, or, or program of the Holy Spirit. Now, some people read this and they get all weirded out about this tongue stuff and, and want to avoid this. Other people read it and they want to normalize it. They want to mandate it. They want to say, this is the way it should be for all of us. But this was a one-time historical supernatural uh, uh, event to demonstrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the beginning of the church, repeated just a few times here in Acts. Now, I happen to be, believe that tongues in 1 Corinthians, when we come to 1 Corinthians, is the same as here, a, a foreign language for several reasons, but one is that Paul doesn't differentiate when we get to 1 Corinthians. But regardless, regardless, while Wheaton Bible Church is a non-charismatic church, we are not anti-charismatic, okay? We are not anti-miraculous, we are not anti-healing because we believe God is a miracle-working God. We just don't want to demand it. And we know we can't legislate it. But man, we want to be open to whatever the Spirit of the living God is going to do. But, but regardless, this isn't the big deal here. 
This isn't the focus, and we make it the focus. And frankly, I think we've been guilty because we don't even get the point here. So I want to show you the point, and I think we've been missing this and missing this for a long, long time. So go to verse 11. At the end of verse 11, we learn that what was being declared in all these different languages was the wonders of God. What is that? Well, certainly it's the power of God. Uh, certainly it would be the death they were declaring in all these different languages, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ. Probably they were even declaring the, the gospel because Peter's so clearly going to explain the gospel even right here in chapter 2. Now do you see what this means? What it means is the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Maybe even the gospel was first announced not in one language, but many. 15 or 16. It's a long list. Why? Because God is saying there is not one language, there is not one culture that has precedence over any other in Christianity. No one can say ours was first. We're the best. The Spirit descends, and what happens is, all of a sudden, it's multiple languages, lots of languages, many languages. Now, I love the point Tim Keller makes here. He says Islam is very different. Because if you were to talk to conservative um, Muslim scholars, or conservative Muslims uh, for that matter, uh, they would tell you that in order to uh, properly read and interpret the Quran, you must do it in one language, Arabic. Now, yes, it's in English, and yes, the Quran is in lots of different languages, uh, but they would tell you it's not the same. It's not the same. So there is this unified monolithic approach in Islam to language and to culture. And that's not true in Christianity. In Christianity, we believe the Bible is the same in Swahili as it is in Korean. The same in Russian as it is in Spanish. Because of Pentecost. Because at Pentecost, uh, uh, because of Pentecost, Christianity comes into a culture, learns the language of that uh, culture, and attempts to honor that culture by saying there's no one right language, there's no one right culture, there's no one right tradition. It's Pentecost, it's right here. And we focus on the tongues and we miss the point. The point is that Pentecost sets the gospel free to transcend language, culture, preferences. So here, as early as Acts chapter 2, we have this incredible foreshadowing going on of the New Testament truth that each and every person is equal before God. 
that each and every race, each and every ethnicity, each and every language is equal uh, in, in the sight of God, equally valuable to God. And never uh, are you and I, never is the church more full of the Holy Spirit, more close to the Spirit of Pentecost, more close to the coming wonder and reality of heaven than when there is no racism. When there is no uh, ethnic, gender, tradition, elitism, or privilege. But rather this uh, love, this desire to honor and esteem everyone to celebrate diversity because it's rooted, we know it's rooted in our, in our common bond in Jesus Christ and no one has precedence. No one. Now let me land this. Let me summarize. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Well, it means a lot of things. But, but when you are a, a man, a woman, a, a student, and day in and day out you're willing to die to yourself and to look outside yourself, to rest in the, the power of the Holy Spirit, and, and, and when you are free and, and secure and you delight in God's love for you revealed in the cross, mediated by the Holy Spirit that now is inside you, and when you can lay aside your music, your, your style of dress, your cultural preferences, and get out of yourself and esteem and love and reach out to anyone and everyone, regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their education, regardless of their background, regardless of their age, then you can know you are being filled with the Holy Spirit and then, once again, the church of Jesus Christ will be unstoppable. Unstoppable. Let's pray. Father, would you, by, by your grace, Enable us to recover this incredible, wonderful reality of the Holy Spirit. Uh, that we might think deeply about what it means, what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. God, would you, you forgive us? And would you change us that we might experience the power and the presence and the, this universal perspective of the Spirit? We want that, God. Our world desperately needs that from us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.